This event was recorded live at the 2019 Edinburgh International Book Festival, a 17-day celebration of words and stories welcoming authors and audiences from around the globe. You can hear more events by subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or Acast, and watch event videos at edbookfest.co.uk and on YouTube at edbookfest. In case you thought this was some kind of like prop about, you know, the, the Monty Python sketch about class, it's actually just Edinburgh. Um, I got soaked crossing the road from the hotel to here. Anyway, I'm sure I'll need it again. Uh, good evening, everybody, and welcome to the only event that has ever happened in Edinburgh where you're not just allowed to be common, but actively encouraged. <laughs> you can applaud that. It was a good joke. Go for it. Uh, I'm Damien Barr, and I am one of the common people featured in this pioneering anthology edited by the incredibly talented force for good that is Kit Deval. Uh, today's session is sponsored by the National Library of Scotland, and we've just been to an event. Um, more applause for them. You're excited, yes? Yes. Uh, we're, we were at an event for them next door, and they had provided scotch eggs, which we thought was very thoughtful. Um, <laughs> Common People is a, a joyous chorus of working-class voices, joined, as the introduction says, in celebration, not an apology. It's 34 essays, poems, and glimpses of memoir um, that reflect the rich lives of those not currently at a dinner party with Ian McEwan in North London. <laughs> Or enjoying a leisurely breakdown in a Tuscan villa with Rachel Kosk. Absolutely. Common People is, as Dolly Parton might say, a coat of many colours. It was imagined, edited and realised by Kit in partnership with the publisher Unbound and lots of national writing agencies, and we'll talk about those in a minute. So Kit was born in Birmingham to an Irish mother and Caribbean father. She worked in criminal and family law for 15 years before becoming a writer. Her debut novel, My Name is Leon, did the double of being critically acclaimed and a bestseller. It's a fantastic uh, first novel, and was shortlisted for awards. Actually, I just said it was a fantastic first novel. People say that as if it sounds a bit pass-ag. Yeah. <laughs> I've just written a first novel, and people are like, it's such a good first novel, and I'm like, it's just a great novel. Yeah. It doesn't matter that it's the first one, and there might not be a second, so shut up. Absolutely. Um, anyway, but anyway, back to Kit. And her Desmond Elliott and her Costa shortlistings. And her latest novel, The Trick to Time, repeats that fantastic double. She truly is one of our most important and exciting writers. Please welcome again, Kit Deval. Thank there you. We go. Um, do, you want to, do you want to read yes, a wee bit? Yes, from, from so the I'll start with the... Um, needs no introduction, really. It is the introduction to the book, which, as I say, I started so many times because this book was very important to me. I wanted it to reflect the writing that was inside, so I'm just going to read it and you'll see why. I started this forward a dozen times. I thought I'd start off with something witty and literary to show that common people can quote the classics and should be taken seriously. Then I decided, no, be yourself. So I began a riff about what it's like to be working class. How, when all the world wants the same thing, a long life with enough to eat and a sound roof, a good education, meaningful paid employment on safe streets and a reason to laugh from time to time. Working class people have to pick a few things off that list and do without the others. Bleak, I thought, too bleak. 
Context is where I went next. Facts and figures, dazzle them with data. I was going to spend 500 words on how many of us there are, how much we live on or can't live on, and by what horrendous percentage living standards have declined and poverty has increased, and the precarious nature of working-class life today. I would demonstrate with a graph, or preferably a Venn diagram, the grim intersection of class, race, disability and gender. But there's already an academic in this book who does it better than I can, so I thought I'd better leave the numbers to the expert. I wanted to throw in an amusing anecdote about the editors and agents who took me aside at book launches and whispered, I'm working class too, you know. <laughs> and I heard in their confession a pride and nostalgia for the lives they had left behind or had had to hide. I also heard relief that at last someone on these pages might tell their story and say, it's okay to be working class. You can step out of the closet or broom cupboard, but I'm not a comedian and the anecdotes weren't that funny. In the end, fittingly, this forward is an opportunity to thank everyone who has supported this book, this cause, this telling of untold stories, to all the writer development agencies, thank you for the massively difficult task of sifting through so many submissions and providing us with the 17 excellent memoirs by brilliant new writers whose lives demonstrate such resilience, humour, solidarity and courage. To all the published writers who leapt on board at the first opportunity, lending their names and their stories to this book of common people, thank you for your generosity and faith in this project and for standing alongside us. And to you, some of you here tonight, who have pledged good money and time, who have tweeted and liked and cheered from the sidelines, thank you from all of us sincerely. Most of all, these memoirs, written in celebration and not apology, are dedicated to everyone who has yearned to see their life on the page, who has hoped one day to read about working-class lives told by the working-class people who lived them. Today's the day. Enjoy. Thank you. And can I ask you, Damien, to just read a little... I mean... Damien's work in this, and can I just say, just to contextualise this, um, when I was putting the common people together, I knew that if I was going to sell any, I had to have some big names on board. And I remember talking to Damien and saying what I was going to do, and he was like, you haven't asked me, you haven't asked me. <laughs> and he was one of the first people to volunteer, to put his name to it, because you need big names if you're going to sell things. And he was so supportive and has been completely supportive of common people from the beginning, as has Louise Doughty, who Louise is somewhere is in the audience. Is, uh, she's over there. there. She she's is. over there. Oh, exactly. Yeah, and I think it's a real tribute to the published authors who got exactly the same amount of money as the unpublished authors, which was basically nothing, um, to lend their time and their name so that common people could uh, appear. And I'd really like to thank those published authors as well as clearly all the unpublished. But you've got to read Damien's piece. Can you read <laughs> us just a little I bit? Sure. Um, well, I just want to say I, it was a joy to be asked to do it because as we're going to come on to talk to you in a minute, it's not, it's not something that publishers are rushing to ask people no. to write about. Um, no. I remember when I, when I wrote Maggie and Me and I handed it to my editor, it was like, 
do I need to give her a translator as well? <laughs> is she, she going to need to find out about, you know, what a gas meter is? Um, <laughs> not even joking. Um, <laughs> so anyway, so, so this is a, a story called Uniform, um, and um, it's about going to get a school uniform um, um, for secondary school. So I was the oldest grandchild in, uh, in my family, um, and um, the first, therefore, to go to high school, and uh, so a school uniform was needed. Um, and it's amazing, actually, how much uniform, school uniform particularly, comes up in this collection. It's a very recurrent theme. Um, but um, for, anybody, for, any, for anybody who's read Maggie and Me, you, you will know my Granny Mac. Um, so this is me uh, going for that, for that, to buy that uniform with my Granny Mac. So I'll miss the start, where she gets on the bus. Um, and now, okay, so we're in Motherwell. Now we're in Motherwell, which is where you come for special things, into school competitions at the civic and library books you don't want to get out in the village. <laughs> Granny Mac opens her handbag and gets out her purse and unclips it. Hundreds of tightly rolled saving stamps spring out like a jack-in-the-box, and she pushes them back in, still there. We pass the ASDA, and when our destination looms, Granny Mac dings. I've only ever gone past the cooperative, which Granny Mac pronounces cooperative. It's sandstone and posher than its neighbours, and certainly older than the Civic across the road, which is all concrete and windows that I can feel my Granny Mac itching to wash. <laughs> Our bus pulls into, pulls into the curb, and Granny Mac ushers me off, then chides me for not thanking the driver. She adjusts her cardigan and smooths her skirt, then tugs at my sleeves and tells me to fix my hair. One of the better names I get called at school is Tumshi, because it sticks up like a turnip top. I can't tame it. I have even scorched my scalp with my dad's girlfriend's tongs, trying to. The long brass handle on the cooperative's doors are not used to the sun. They're warm in my hands. I think again of the raven's craig and the molten steel that makes the sky glow orange every night. That's my dad. He makes the sun set twice. I take a deep breath as I push the door. Inside, there is no music. The light is fluorescent and cold. The air smells polite. Everybody in here knows how to behave. Granny Mac conquers the shop floor, striding between the racks of raincoats whose arms grab at me. Plastic hangers rattle in her wake. We reach the stairs at the back, which point up to school uniforms. Granny Mac pauses to admire the highly polished handrail snaking up and decides not to sully it as we ascend. I'm tempted to leave a fingerprint, something to show I've been here, but think better of it. Upstairs, we are greeted by a lady half my granny's age, but still older than my mum. Can I help yous? She asks, the use proof that she's no better than us. <laughs> I'm pushed forwards. This is my grandson. The woman looks me up and down, measuring me. The oldest. He'll be a large already, but we better start extra large. <laughs> Big laddie, eh? Says the lady, approaching me with a tape measure she spools from her sleeve like a magician producing silk hankies. You'll have to bend down, son. I bend. This feels weird in the middle of a shop. A metal tab on the end of her tape feels cold against the back of my neck as she wraps it round, and I must flinch because I get a look. Breathe normal, says the lady. Arms up. Granny Mac tries to read the tiny notes the lady scribbles on her pad. Right, chest. She stands behind me and feeds the tape around. For one horrific moment, it's like she's going to cuddle me. Waist. I put my hands on my hips. Granny Mac steps forward and lifts my arms up. Stand right, she says. Let the lady do her job. Sorry, on you go. The disembodied hands appear by my side and feed the tape around where a belt should go. I look up and try not to swallow. 
Taylor High School then, the lady asks, making a final note and walking over to the well-behaved racks of blazers. No, says Granny Mac, straightening up. Brannock. Oh. <laughs> the rest will be going to Taylor, says Granny Mac. This one's the first. Right, said the lady brightly, walking around picking things up. Large on a shirt and 26-inch waist. God, those were the days. And <laughs> with a long leg and an extra large on the blazer. I am handed hanger after hanger and sent into the changing room. The blazer is the big thing and I can't believe the price. This will be the dearest thing I've ever had. I get it all on. The tags itch my neck and my waist. I'm zipping it up when the cotton whips back. Right, says Granny Mac. The lady stands behind her, her tape measure doped over her arm. I catch the end of the curtain and try to hold it there as I tuck my shirt in. I pull the curtain back and the rings rattle on the rail. He'll grow into it, says Granny Mac. With something like pride as she pulls the sleeves of my blazer down over my wrist, the lady walks over and says, P.E. kit. Anyway, we go through all the kit until Granny Mac has to pay for it. She pulls her purse out and clicks it open and out spring the stamps. They skitter across the counter, making a tiny scratching noise that I feel rather than hear. I notice some are a bit faded. The lot, asks the lady, stupefied in the presence of years of saving. The whole lot, says Granny Mac, closing her purse and plonking it back in her handbag. The lady bends down to catch the fastest stamps. She returns the SQPs to the counter, then leans forward and corrals them in her arms. Her lips move silently. She's counting them. I can't believe she'd dare. Take your time, hen, says Granny Mac. <laughs> the schools don't go back for weeks. <laughs> she picks up her handbag and turns to me, folding her arms across her chest. Granny Mac is victorious. Granny Mac is smiling at me. Okay. Thank you very much. That's the first time I've got to read that. That was so nice good. To see, nice to see Granny Mac again. Um, so tell us about how you chose the stories, because I know it's a mixture of established people um, and emerging people. Did you? Yeah. Did you do a big shout out? So I asked the people that I knew were, you know, well-known working class writers. That was relatively easy. But finding new uh, and unpublished uh, working class writers were harder. So I enlisted the work, uh, the writer development agencies. There's five in the UK. And um, they sent, set out a call for working class writers. And they, it had to be memoir. I asked for memoir because... Otherwise, we'd have just had lots of disparate stories, and I yeah. really wanted this to showcase the, the, the writing and the writing talent. Overwhelmingly, the question that came back is, am I working class? Right. Because people would um, you know, write in and say, oh, well, my mum was a cleaner, but then she trained as a nurse, and my dad was in the factory, but then he became a manager. Am I working class? And I would have every permutation of uh, you know, different lifestyles. And I'd say, well, you decide. You know, I can't decide that for anyone. I know that it's not about lifestyle. It's not about money. It's not about where you are now, I don't think. Mm -hmm. um, so once we'd so established... it's partly about where, where, where you started, I wh think where so. you feel connected. It's where you feel connected, because definitely there are some people that have started their lives working class and have, for whatever reason, feel they've moved away from and now can identify as being uh, middle class. I couldn't do that. I could never, never say that I was middle class. I definitely have a middle class lifestyle, nothing to do with it. And some academics who measure class have said it depends on what your parents did when you were 14. As you were 14? When you were 14, just a cut off number. Right. But I was just saying, you know, you decide. And so they had 
hundreds, thousands in fact, of uh, memoir that I was given maybe 30 to choose from and I had to choose 17. It was extremely difficult. Mm. But they're great, the ones I've got. What are the common themes? I mean, we talked then about uniform. That's something that comes up lots of clothing generally. Clothing and how clothing marked you out. So there's a lot of shame around clothing. You know, my clothes weren't this. I remember going to school and... I had, to, I was, I, I used to What's thank to, God. To to? I went to grammar school, and I used to thank God for the uniform because I didn't have the clothes to to keep up with my friends. So, mm. I was really grateful. I know there's lots of debate now about uniforms and whether yeah. we should have them. Thank God because I didn't get teased at school because I was wearing what it was from a particular shop like you. Yeah. So I had to wear, and I looked identical, but on. Those few days when you had to go in in your own clothes, I was mortified. So uniform was one, clothing. Housing was another, Mm -hmm. how we lived. And like my family, for example, very posh outside, slum inside because we had no money. But to the world, we had to paint the front gate and have a little, you know, thing of flowers. But inside was miserable. So that was, that was a bot house. That was a, private, a bot house. A bot house. A a house. Okay. Yes, it was. It wasn't a council house. Okay. So council housing came up. Yeah. And food, yeah. massively. Yeah. There was so much about not enough to eat, what you ate, how, whether or not you cut your sandwich on the diagonal or straight across. <laughs> and that was... That's a re- controversy that rages to this Absolutely. day. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so all of those things that are, co- you know, very common themes through the stories of hunger yeah. uh, and pride, so much about pride. Yeah, that is amazing. So interesting, you hear you saying that you're, and you say hunger. We're not, we're not talking about the Victorian workhouse no. here. We're talking no. about now-ish. We're talking about now, absolutely, because although these are memoir and lots of them are set in the 80s and 90s, 70s in my case, um, Look at, look at now, we have food banks now. Yeah. I mean, there were no food banks when I was a child. I'm talking in the 60s and 70s. Well, I didn't know of any food banks. Mm. Things are so much worse now, I think. I mean, mm. I don't think I'm being nostalgic about the past. But to me, uh, the very idea that people went somewhere and got a bag of food, I don't remember that happening. Mm. Even though people were poor, they were working. I mean, this is the working class that mm. we are talking about. Mm. Even though when uh, the media and society think about working class, they also include the non-working class. Mm. Generations of people who perhaps, for whatever reason, the grandfather didn't work, the father didn't work, and they're still considered working class. Yeah. I, when I was writing about the, the, the school uniform, I mean, I remember being so excited to, to get one because I thought that it looked handsome. Yeah. And, um, and I, I meant that I was leaving primary school and all the rest of it, but I was horrified when I saw how much it cost because yeah. I knew... You know, the, the green shield them. stamps. Did yeah, you, but, but she'd yeah. saved them up her totally. whole life. And her mortification was that I was going to the, the, the Protestant school and not the Catholic school. And yeah. that, that there'd be this, I only had one sibling, so she'd get less use out of the blazer, you know, everybody else. <laughs> but I got the new one, so that was quite good. But I remember feeling embarrassed and ashamed yes. that she was paying with the stamps. Totally. And it was only when I looked back at, and reappraised that memory, which I think happens with all memoir, yeah. that you realise, actually, I, I should be ashamed of being ashamed. Absolutely. I should have felt proud. Exactly. But at the time, I was like, oh, God, why is she not You're embarrassed. Like, 
you know, money or even better, one of those credit cards that you see on the telly with the thing where people do that. Totally. And, um, and also the, just the, the sense of shame that you can't keep up with your peers, which must go on now. Obviously, you know, yeah, does, I, of, course I, of course it does, where kids think I haven't got that. I haven't got the Nike trainers. I've got yeah. the trainers from Asda. Yeah. It's still going on as, um, as a way of shaming people and humiliating people or just our internal sense of wanting to be like everybody else. And um, let's, let's go back a wee bit to, to your story. So how is it that you grew up in a house that was kind of portion on the, portion the outside and, and yeah. on, on the inside? What was going so, on So uh, my parents met in 1958. My father was from the West Indies. My mother was an Irish immigrant. And in those days, you would routinely see in boarding houses, no dogs, no blacks, no Irish. And so you heard the blacks and the Irish together and children are going to result. No dogs. We never had a dog. Um, so I, we were brought up in, in a... My father was a, a bit of a snob, actually, and he wouldn't live where the other immigrants lived. He just thought, I'm not doing that. So he wouldn't have a council house. So we had quite a posh house. It wasn't a posh house. It was a terraced house, but it was bought. Uh-huh. And he was very concerned with looking good, you know, presenting this image. But There's actually, so many immigrants, absolutely, and, and what you accepted. wore, yeah. you know, you couldn't leave the house looking shabby or anything like that. So um, we, we grew up in poverty. I mean, there's no other word for it. You know, we didn't have enough to eat. We didn't have clothes. We lived in the cold. It was and horrible. So you didn't have enough to eat, so you have memories of being hungry. I was, to, I was hungry. taken to hospital three times for being undernourished for being dangerously thin. Um, I was very ill as a child. Um, and we were very cold, and we had impetigo, and we had lots of uh, you know, diseases from, from being undernourished and badly nourished. Um, my parents fought like a cat and dog. It was not a happy home. Although I do remember laughing, because all the time, there's five of us, and we were a tribe, and we'd make fun of them because they couldn't speak properly. <laughs> Embarrassing to say, but we did. It was fun for us. Oh, um, and your I children, left. It's your parents, of course. Absolutely. So I left home when I was 16. You had to leave home. You mm. either had to get a job and contribute to the family, mm. or you had to leave home. So I chose to chose to leave home. And so I was wild from 16 to 22. Sex, drugs, and rock and roll. It was great, you know. Um, and I sort of came was to. That no, was really great. Okay. Yeah. Just checking. Um, <laughs> It was, and t- I did have a couple of bad trips. I had yeah. towards, I was, I was probably 21, and I had some bad times where I feared for my sanity, and right. I just thought, you can't, you can't keep it up. Right. I, was a Je- I was brought up as a Jehovah's Witness, and I thought I was going to die in 1976. So I had to pack it in. So I started packing it in, and by the time I was 21, yeah. uh, 1981, I was like, maybe Armageddon's not going to come. You know, stop taking the drugs. Um, <laughs> and got, I, got, I got a job. Um, Can I just say, up to that point, were you actually a full-on full believer? Uh, so I, I wasn't when I was 16, when yeah. I left home. But even when I left, I did believe that Armageddon was going to come and wipe out evil. And I was evil because I was taking drugs. I had boyfriends. Right. Um, so I was trying to outrun it by, right. you know, what is that drug? I'll have that because I'm going to die anyway. I might as well. Okay. Um, and then by the time I was 21, 22, I was exhausted and I, I got a job. I started to... Uh, I worked for a, the Crown Prosecution Service, which was really interesting. And while I was there, there was um, a solicitor who re- read. 
and I used to watch him reading, and I never read. I read what you had to read at school, nothing else. There were no books in our house. Apart from? The Bible yeah. and the news of the world. Uh, to Both equally scandalous. Great works of fiction. Great works of fiction. And um, so I, I just wouldn't read anything. I read at school, that was it. So by the time I was 22, I just thought, what am I going to do with my nights? Now I'm not drinking and I'm not spliffing. <laughs> So I said to this solicitor, give me your top ten books. Just give me, you know, top ten. Anyway, didn't know he'd been in the army. So he gave me the Red Badge of Courage, um, the Riddle of the Sands. um, Tom Sharp. Siege of Krishnapur. No Tom Sharp. I I discovered him later and he was great. Um, But in there, in that top ten, there was also Madame Bovary and there was Therese Racan. And I, I, I love the, the war books, by the way, but when I discovered that, I was just like, zing, better than any drug. Yeah. You know, just fantastic. And I started reading the classics because they were all penguin black spines. Uh-huh. And I read hundreds, hundreds, and I was, it was the bug. I never thought about being a writer, but I did think I was born to read mm-hmm. uh, and, and read the classics. I didn't, I didn't stray from the classics. I didn't read Stephen King or anything. I was just like working my way through to, to Emile Zola from Jane Austen. In a very classically working class way, actually. Yes, yes, yeah. absolutely. And, and because I didn't know. No one said to me, oh, you, sh- you know, um, Arnold Bennett knew Gustav Flaubert. Yeah. That's the romantic period. Yeah. I ne- had no idea. I was just, do, do I like it? Yes. Yeah. Or do I like it? No. Right. Um, and at what point did it, did it start to occur to you that you might be interested in writing books rather, rather than reading them? Um, I was 42. I'd adopted a little boy who was very ill, very ill. And I'd, I'd worked since I was in my 20s. And I had to stop work to look after him. And I plumped the cushions. I went to a mother and baby group. Never again. <laughs> I hated it. Oh, my God. The competitive parenting. I, I never heard of it before. You know, oh, it's yours doing that, mine's doing that. And I, I didn't know. Yeah. So I hated it. Never, never went back to that. I was bored. Yeah. And I thought, I'll have a go. You know, I'll see if I can do it. And I've got to be honest, I thought I'd be good. I thought, I've read all those books. How hard can it be? <laughs> um, and I was so bad. I couldn't believe how hard it was to describe a room, to describe a person, to say he put his hand on the handle and turned the door. Do I say that or do I just have him in the room? It was really difficult. Um, Has it got any easier? No, yeah. it's got no, no easier at all. And I, well, I was maybe in my 40s, late 40s, by the time I realised how crap I was. And I did a creative writing degree, which was not very good, but it was great to indulge myself. And that was, I was 52. I was yeah. the oldest person in the class. Um, what did that feel like? Well, when I was going to university, um, I really thought I was going... It was Oxford Brooks. I thought I was going to Oxford because I didn't, I'd never been to university. So... Yeah. I thought I was going to have a wood-panelled room. Brideshead revisited. Yeah. I thought I was going to have a wood-panelled room with a dom with the, with the thing and a battered leather thing. And he'd smoke, even though it wasn't allowed. He'd <laughs> smoke and he'd say, tell me about Virginia Woolf. I thought that's what it was going to be. And I got yeah. to this horrible building and it was just like, in there, read that, do that. I was shocked. Mm. I really wanted the university experience. Mm. And it, it wasn't that. Um, and I entered... 
a 300-word story to the Fish Prize. So this was, uh, I was 52 at the time. And I didn't get, I didn't win, or come first, second or third, or be long-listed, but I got an honorary mention. And that was it. I've got to do it now. I've got yeah. to write a novel. And it took me a while, but I did it. Yeah. And in your calculations about whether or not you could write, apart from, obviously, massively and wildly overestimating your own abilities... Absolutely. Um, where, where did class come um, in that, that equation? One what, thing... Who were the role models that, that you were able to think of? Uh, one thing I knew that when I was doing my reading through the classics is that I wasn't reading working-class people that were writing about themselves. So it was Dickens, even though he wasn't particularly middle-class, but Dickens was writing about working-class people, yeah. or Zola was writing about working-class people. It was always filtered mm. through middle-class people. I would have found that hard to articulate at the time, but I think when it came for, for me to write, I very much wanted to write about my experience, about who the real people were to me. If you do a search about poor people, because I did a Google search for poor people, and Jane Eyre comes up. Jane Eyre spoke French. Yeah. She had a maid. Yeah. I would have been Jane Eyre's maid. I didn't want to know about Jane Eyre. I wanted yeah. to know who's emptying the bedpan. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Who's, who's in the kitchen? Yeah. Um, so I really wanted to talk about the lives I knew, the people I knew, the houses I knew, about the sandwiches that were cut horizontal and not from corner to corner. It was really important that I reflected my background. I didn't know it was a thing. I didn't know it, it would become a movement. I, yeah. I just thought, well, I'm going to write what I know. Okay. Um, what was your experience like of engaging with the world of publishing and agents and stuff like that? Um, so when I wrote My Name is Leon, it went to auction, and um, I had to go and... and I was wooed by publishers who wanted to publish the story because they, was, they were saying, you know, there's nothing like it. Mm. So I had an overwhelmingly positive experience about being published and my editor is very posh. I'd say she's upper middle class. My agent is, is middle class. It's not to say that the people that populate the industry are anti-working class at all, mm. but there are definite gatekeeping mechanisms in publishing for a start, all of publishing happens mostly in London. Mm. So you would have a situation, I mean, like I say, I had a very middle-class lifestyle at the time, but you do have a, a situation where you have a working-class writer, let's say from Doncaster, and they send their stuff to an agent, and the agent says, oh, I'm quite interested, yeah. Can you come and see me at 3 o'clock in London? That's about 120 quid yeah. for the train fare. Yeah. Uh, when you get there, you've got to get across London. And it's intimidating. If you don't spend your time in London all the time, that's yeah. intimidating. You go, if you go to Penguin's offices, they are absolutely sublime art deco building on the Strand. Again, it can feel intimidating. So you're inhabiting spaces that you're not used to. You're not being your best self. Mm. Also, to be a writer, you want to go to events like this. How much? I don't know how much this, this event is, but if you're working class and struggling... That's expensive. Mm. It's not just a case of pen and paper. I'll write my story, I'll get it published. That's not how publishing works. No. There's events, there's gatekeeping, there's agents, there's going to see people, there's having the confidence, there's presenting yourself well. Mm. So I had a relatively easy ride, I think, and it's certainly not the case for everybody. Mm. 
Um, I'm just remembering um, when there was an auction as well for Maggie and me. Yeah. And um, uh, which an auction is where like more than one publisher wants wants to buy it. So your agent's like, come on. Yeah. Um, and I sort of didn't I didn't understand no. the process at all. Um, but I remember going to do to going to meet the publishers and being hugely in, intimidated yes. um, by that. But because I'd written. Um, a book that was about growing up in a, in a working class house in the west of Scotland, you know, being gay, all that sort of they, they genu- people, some of them genuinely couldn't compute it. Yes. Like, and some of the, I remember going to see one publisher who, even though um, I, it was says Maggie and me, a memoir on the front, were like, we just think your imagination's brilliant, it's a wonderful novel. And I'm like, because <laughs> you can't imagine that yeah. people could live like that, you know, yeah. and, and that genuinely was my experience. And also of going to, to see publishers and them showing you what they would put on the, on the, the, the jacket of your yes. work. And, um, and so many of them uh, had a crying child with no shoes in black and white. And I was like, I mean, you know, <laughs> my name isn't Frank McCourt. Yeah, know? totally. Uh, but, you know, but they were like... You know, giving yeah. kind of side head like that, yeah. and, I, and I'm like, it's actually quite happy. There's a lot of humour in there, yeah. like there is in this fantastic Absolutely. collection. So much humour, so much affection, so much love. Yeah. But all they could kind of see through their filter was poverty. How bad it is. How bad it Absolutely. is. Absolutely. And, and one of the things that that happens in publishing is that um, the middle class people that largely inhabit inhabit publishing think that if it's working class, it happens up north. Yeah. I don't know why, but it always happens. Yeah, yeah. You've got to use the word gritty. It's yes. got to be gritty. gritty. It's going to be syringes <laughs> in the hallway. Yeah. It's going to be uh, single parents. Yeah. It's, they've got this whole narrative about what it is to be working class that is just simply not true. Yeah. Um, and so one well, of the reasons... It's true for some people. It's, it's true not, for... It's not, exactly. Not true for all people, and I think what's important about this collection is, is that it breaks down the idea of working yes. class as a monolith and shows that diversity Absolutely. of working class experiences. Chris McCudden writes about it brilliantly in his so good. Shy, you know, shy Bairns Getting Out, where he's... he's, he's a working class family, his two working class grandmothers, equally working class, both totally hate each other. <laughs> one one thinks she's posh because she goes to Marks and Spencer's for a cake, and the other one gets cream cakes in the freezer shop. And they they were they, they yeah. fight about it for thirty years. Absolutely, you know, but that's like you know there's a diversity yeah. there. It's breaking that, totally. breaking that down. That's I think. And one of the things I was absolutely adamant um, when I did the book is that it didn't turn into the four Yorkshiremen where yeah. we were all trying to outdo each other. Well, yeah. did you have that? Oh, but we were poorer. <laughs> you know, we we did, I didn't want that to be because there's so much joy and solidarity. Yeah. Of course, life hard if yeah, you work class yeah. by its very nature but there are so many things that we have because of being working class not in spite of being working class mm. we only have these things these attributes and these qualities because we have not had or we've had to fight or we felt the shame about our mm. um, uniform or what we've eaten and I do think that gives you um, compassion you know, I, I can look at children in a playground and I can think, you're, not, you're hungry. Yeah. Or look what you're wearing and you just look past the obvious because you've been there. And resilience. And resilience, yes. I think uh, Louise writes about this brilliantly in, in, in her story, um, talking about class mobility. And you know, yes. she talks about her father's grandfather who was, po- was it Pauper 57, Louise, in the, wor- in the workhouse? 
You know, that's somebody who's sitting here's grandfather, uh, yeah. great-grandfather, rather. Um, and, um, you know, and, and, and that idea that, you know, in a couple of generations gone from that to sitting in the audience here, best-selling novelists, yeah. you know, tele-adaptations, great teeth, by the way. You know, <laughs> all, of, all, of, all of that kind of, all of that, you know. Yeah. Um, and, and class mobility is one of the tropes of working class fiction, but it's very problematic. Totally, and because people do think that working class, a working class life is something to escape. Yeah, to get away from. You only want to go skiing. Don't you all want to go skiing? Yeah. No, I never wanted to go skiing. It's not about being ashamed. It's not about wanting what goes with, supposedly, mm. being middle class. It's about being very proud of who you are and about what comes with being working class mm. and being very happy to stay working class. I mean, it's not about money. It yeah. certainly isn't about money. If you take um, somebody like Wayne Rooney... Multi-millionaire. Would you say he was work middle class? I wouldn't. I'd say he's a working class boy with a lot of money. Yeah. And there's lots of people like that. It's about. And there are lots of middle class people with no money. Absolutely. And, and lots, many, lots here, of upper class. They've all, come, they've all come in because like, <laughs> the school fees are absolutely rooking me. I'm, I'm out here, you know. And, so. and lots of you know aristocracy with yeah. no money whatsoever. Yeah. Absolutely poor, but you can't say they're working class. No. So I think, I think for me, it's about being proud yeah. of that and sort of acknowledging that it's okay to be working class. Like I say, I said in the introduction, I really had people at big awards dinners yeah. coming up to me and going, actually, I'm working class. And then they'd walk off, you yeah. know, and, because it was almost an unpopular confession mm. and one they hadn't made. It's interesting to me, um, you know, this event's taking place in, in Edinburgh. I grew up on the West Coast. and I was so intimidated when I came to university in Edinburgh um, I, I remember ordering a matcha coffee um, and being laughed at by the woman behind the counter in Montpellier Cafe. If you're still there, I hate you. <laughs> um, but like, um, I'm over it. It's fine. Um, but like, but you know, but, but but like those gatekeeping encounters starting from the you know from the from the, the second that, that that I got here, and that's yeah. that you know, that that east-west thing is really important. But there's also a north-south thing that I think which is that in Scotland, there are more working-class voices making yes. it through to publication. We were talking earlier about the National Library. Yes. You know, and, you know, so thinking of, you know, from Burns, you know, right through Jan Janice Galloway, yeah, John James Kelman, Ian Rankin, Val McDermott, all these am amazing writers. They're, they're, we, 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 these voices seem to be being heard yeah. more. Here totally, than and, than and in, in Ireland. And in Wales. Yeah. I don't know what it is about England that, you know... It, it's is it just the English? I'm joking, I think it I'm is. Um, I'm joking, I'm joking. I don't joking, know, joking, but no. they, it, it is different. No, it, it is. absolutely it is, it is, it is, is different. Is, the, is. the class system is, is more uh, there, it's more present, it's more oppressive, yeah. most definitely. And, of course, you know, my accent, I've got a Brummie accent, yeah. and that stands out, you know, in lots of publishing circles. People go... Oh, it's class, actually. Yeah, and I don't say class. No, yeah. I say class and yeah. always will. Um, so it's, it's very much, if you're confident, I'm a confident person, you're a confident person, I can go into those spaces and I can hold my own. Mm. That's not true of all For working class, of, of anybody, of any yeah. sector of society. So if you are intimidated, you aren't going to do a good job of getting an agent, of getting published, and of you know, doing events like this. It can be intimidating. What is publishing doing to change? They are doing things. I mean, they are publishing... So Penguin, for example, Hache, they've all got lots of schemes to try and invite working-class people in. Um, and also, it has to be said that one of the things that will democratise publishing is when working-class people can write about anything. Yes. 
and not, well, you've got to regurgitate your story. Can you give me a grim tower block story because you're working class, yeah. whereas him over there, yeah. he can write about Henry VIII. Yeah. He can write about Venice in the 15th century. You've got to write the yeah. gritty northern yeah. crime thriller. Yeah. True uh, equality is when the working class writer can write about Anne Boleyn. Yeah. She can write the historical novel. She can write about whatever. She hasn't got to constantly be saying, here's the bleak story, here's the bleak story, here's the, the gutter story. But when we can write whatever we want, we'll know we've got equality. And that's what, definitely what, when I'm talking to publishers, I'm saying that's where we've got to get to. Not just working class people writing about working class lives. That's half of it. Yes, no, and it's, and it's, a, it's a, a part of the way for the journey, and I think yes. the same is true for queer people, totally. people of colour, women. It's yes. this idea that there is a single story. Yes. And it's usually the story that somebody has in their mind yes. about you when you meet them from, some, you know, from the publishing world. Absolutely. It's like, oh, this kit's this. Yes. We want this stood from you. Well, you're like, oh, I want to write about... You there's know. a um, well-known uh, Indian writer who submitted a story to his publisher, his first novel, and he was told, and I'm quoting, to up the samosa count because there weren't enough... Their perception of what this Indian man was going to deliver had to have samosas in it because you're Indian. So we can publish it if it's about what we perceive as your interest and your niche area. Yeah. He should be able to write about anything yeah. and deliver it and say, well, you're a writer and we will look at your work as, as though it's anybody else's work. Not we're going to look at the Indian novel, the gay novel, yeah. the working class woman novel. It's, it's, it should, we should be better than that. I had an editor who uh, was looking at an early draft of, of Maggie and me and said, you know, what's, what's missing is there's just there's no big coming out scene, you know, and she really wanted it. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I said it's because it wasn't the most interesting thing that happened. It's yeah. just a story. It's about a narrative. It's a, you know, she was like, oh, and, and, and I said, I'll write it for you. Admittedly, I didn't make great efforts, but I mean, I said, yeah. it's really boring. And that bit of it, and I wrote it, and she was like, yeah, you're right, it is boring. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but I thought that uh, what I thought was interesting is this pressure that we come pressure. under. Pressure. The pressure that you come under to perform, yes. I think. Yes. Um, your, you know, your kind of your minority status, if, yes. if you like. And, and you're so desperate to get published yeah, that people, actually you'll yeah. put anything you like in that yeah, book yeah. because you want to get published, but yeah. you shouldn't have to yeah. perform for the publishing world. So how do we make sure, I mean, is there going to be a volume two? How do, how do, how do we make sure this is not just a fashion? Totally. Which is, which is a concern. Yeah, you know, absolutely. Concern. And it is very fashionable at the moment. So first of all, I'm doing a Common People Island. That's, that will be next year. Great. Um, what we built into um, the writer development agencies for all the new writers was a mentoring programme so that it isn't just you got published in that goodbye, but every uh, unpublished writer has got a mentor assigned, they've got some funding assigned, two or three of them have got um, agents already just yeah. from being in the book. Yeah. And, and can I just say, I met one of them. She did an event with one, Astra Bloom. She's oh, so, yes, she's, she's great. Great story. And um, she said, to me, I'm so excited. She's like, I'm so excited. I've got an agent, but I'm so nervous and she'll be there tonight and she's going to be judging me and all the rest of it. And I looked at her and I was like, God, you remind me of me when totally. I got an agent. And I had a friend in New York who turned to me. So he's so fantastic. Um, and, and, um, and I'd been trying to get my agent on the phone and he said, honey, if you can't get your agent on the phone, you haven't got an agent. Remember, they work for you. And I was like, yeah. oh, you're amazing. <laughs> you know? And so I said just to you know, Astra, Astra Bloom, and I was like, you know, the thing about your agent is they don't get paid. You know, they're taking, you're paying them 15% yeah. of everything that you yeah. earn. 
they work for you. And you could just see a kind of like... Absolutely. It's like that, these are the dirty conversations about money that we have that to have. That you have to have, absolutely. To have. It's really yeah. important. And yeah. if you are working class, you can be so grateful to be in those yeah. spaces that you will do anything yeah. and you won't get the best deal. Yeah. And, and lots of people, middle class people particularly do grow up with more confidence and more of a sense of entitlement about what they're owed, whereas a lot of working-class people go and will just take whatever's offered. So I interviewed Come People Ireland, (gasps) the mentoring scheme. The mentoring scheme. I hope one day to do another one. There are so many people I turned down that I feel bad about that I would like to re-harness. And also just I think people are talking about it. That's one of the best things. You know, this isn't down to me. This is down to loads of people who have softened the ground on working-class um, lives and working-class writing. And I think the big publishers are making strides. They're, 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 things are changing, I do believe. Well, you're helping make them change, so I'm going to open up to questions, but I just do want to give you a round of applause as we open up to questions. Thank you. Thank you. Like that. So... We've, we've got a roving mic. It could be a question about sandwiches and which way to cut them or something less controversial. Um, there we are. Lady there, if you just wait till the mic gets to you so that we can, everyone can hear it. Thanks very much. Could you say something, please, about crowdfunding and using Unbound and whether that's the way forward or yeah. any reflections on, on that? Maybe sure. you could explain the arrangement for people yeah. who, who aren't familiar with it. So, Thank you. So Unbound is a crowdfunding publisher. So you go to Unbound with your idea and they will say whether they think it's viable or not. And if they think it's viable, you upload a little video of you saying, I'd like to write a book about hedgehog racing or whatever it is. And they tell you how much money you've got to um, crowdfund, get from your um, supporters. And then that goes into the making and the marketing of the book. And I chose Unbound especially, and I had a great experience with Unbound, because you build your audience. Everybody that pledges £3.50 or £10 or £20, they're people that are going to buy your book. And I knew of the great enthusiasm there was for this book, and it's Mm. a great way, especially if you're an unpublished author, building your audience before your book comes out. Because another way of doing it is you self-publish your book and you end up with 200 copies and you're giving it to your aunt and your cousin and everybody. But actually, the people that you want to read it don't know about it. Unbound are so good about getting the word out there. And we, uh, I think we had to raise £17,000. And they said it'll take about three months. And we did it in three weeks. It was overwhelming overwhelming i mean as I, as I say it is thanks to the names that were on there big author names that you know attract attention and also you know people like louise people like damien going out there and saying i'm in this yeah. and stood up as being working class and that's a big thing yeah. it gives you permission to say i'm working class too yeah, I, I had a, a lot of people who were like, you're not working class, you host a literary salon, it's a boy, shut up. And I'm like, well, actually, no, I am. Yeah. Um, you know, you know and, and there, there is a reason that I, that, I, that, I, that I do it there, actually. It's because they're portion the truest sense of being open and welcoming, not like the Ritz, which is snooty. Absolutely. You know, there's a kind of iconoclasm about, yeah. the, about the truly posh, which is that sort totally. of openness. But it's really interesting having people tell me that I'm that not. That you're posh. Well, yeah, let I'm me not. just tell you, Damien doesn't know, I'm going to tell you this story, but okay. I will anyway. So when I was... Um, beginning to write, so I think I would have probably been 53, hadn't published anything, hadn't won anything. And I was at Gladstone's Library, and 
Damien Barr was there, and I was so intimidated because he's posh. That's what I thought. <laughs> um, and he ran this fabulous literary salon that I used to look at all the time, all the guests he had. And I used to think, oh my God, one day, one day he might interview me. Today's the day. And um, dreams come true. I was, I was chatting to someone. And Damien came over, and I was completely tongue-tied. I was like, oh, my God, Damien Barr, Damien Barr. And you were so nice to me. And that's not always true. That is not always true of people that are well-known in literary circles. If you're nobody, you can get treated like nobody. And Damien was so lovely to me. You might remember this, but you asked me about my book, which was a bit shit, um, but I made it sound good. And you said, how, why was I there and what was I doing and how was my writing going? And you were so nice and kind and I've never forgotten it. And he doesn't know that, but it made a difference. Oh. You're welcome. Um, that is actually, Gladstone's Library, I'm glad you mentioned it, is an amazing place. Really good place. And that's place. what you should know about it. It's where Gladstone took all his papers and books um, when, he, when he was getting towards the end of his, his life and he did read a lot. And he did yes. a lot of rubbish as well. Yes. But, but his books are there, and he, write, he wrote in the margins, and, and you know, the, the, they're in this library, and there are rooms where you can stay, so you can yeah. effectively sleep with books. And it's a great um, place to write. And they cook your food. Yeah. Um, and, it's, you know, it is, and you do meet amazing people. And you actually, I, the, the t- a couple of times after that, I went, I met one of, God, this is going to sound like a right loving, but I met your, uh, one of your creative writing groups. Yes, that's yeah, right, because I used there. to take my creative writing group there, like 14 of us, so that we could write and talk about writing, yeah. talk about a comma without yeah. people thinking you're weird. Yeah, yeah. They, 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 were, they were a very cool group. I really liked them. Um, but it's a, it's a great place to go. And what's also good about it is it's very open. It's not one of those places where you it's feel like, oh, I shouldn't go to Totally. Here. It's you not snooty. It's very welcoming. And it's, not yeah. like, it's a great place to go. And write. Anyway, back to questions. Yes, microphone will get to you. Hiya. Uh, Hiya. I just wanted to ask, um, when you were talking earlier on and you've written about before that um, working class writers get boxed into specific stories and narratives, did you feel any tension when you were putting this book together and asking specifically for class memoir as opposed to, as you said yourself, to write a bunch of disparate stories? Yeah. And that actually that might be what you want, right? A bunch of disparate stories. I I really wanted, um, because of the perception about what working class lives are like, I really wanted it to be joyous. Now, it's not completely joyous. There's some hard stories in there and some hard detail. But it is written with humour. It's written with love for where we come from. And, And everyone comes from somewhere different. There is someone there whose parents took heroin. And then there's someone who you'd say was bordering on the, on, the, on the middle class, you know, or certainly looking at it. And there's all those narratives in between. And the only thing I think I said in the letter to everybody is this is a celebration of being working class. We did, I really didn't want it to be, oh, it's terrible, it's terrible. Of course it was hard, but it did, I just didn't want it to be misery after misery. Who wants to read that? If you're working class, you know it. Mm. And if you're not working class, it feeds into that shite mm. just over and over again. So I really wanted it to be positive and truthful. And that's why I asked for a memoir. Okay. Another question? Oh, yes, yeah. Can I just say very quickly, um, I've been terrible at keeping time. Are we over? Or have we got no, you're fine. You've got another... Ten minutes. Okay, we'll just Great. Keep going. Great. That's not an excuse for a long question. 
Hi. Um, I wanted to ask about, you talked about the north and south divide and, and working classes in the north. What about rural working classes? Mm. Do you think there's a kind of a gap in the, yeah. in the market there a little bit? Definitely. And it's very different being rural working class. You need your neighbours much more. You may not own, you get the opportunity to own land and, and jobs are very scarce. There's a lot of, my sister uh, lives in rural Dorset and she lives in a tied cottage and she sort of has to do as she's told. Um, you know, it's, it's almost feudal, the world that she lives in. And one of the things I did think about doing next was um, common people concentrating on the rural experience. And I, do, I don't have a rural experience. I, I didn't touch a horse till I was about 22. <laughs> so I don't know anything about the countryside. It sort of freaks me out a little bit, yeah. open spaces. But I know it's important, and I've been told, certainly by my sister, how different it is. It's a very different experience than being in a city. Mm. So I, I think it's a really important distinction, and it's one that doesn't really appear in the book, no, actually. No, it it's much more metropolitan. It uh, is. The stories are sort of towns and industrial towns. Yeah, cities, and villages sometimes, villages, yeah. but not rural, no. And I, th I think it's missing. Yeah, no, that's, that's very true. It's a really good question. Thank you. Other questions? Yes, please. Hi, I'm thinking about what happens to people at school mm. that they think that writing might be an option. I grew up in the Isle of Butte uh, where there was only one secondary school and arts were seen as being something that the doctor's daughter or the lawyer's daughter could pursue and they tended to be given the parts in the choir even although they were tone deaf because of their position in society whereas I was always encouraged to study law or become a scientist or something where I could actually earn money because I didn't come from that kind of background. Um, and it, you also, at that age, you either had to be Baudelaire, and you kind of were born fully fledged as a writer and a genius, yeah. or you went and you got a, a profession, if you could, or a job. Um, is there a way of, of, of getting kids at school to think that there's a pathway to being a writer? Yeah. Um, because it was never really a viable option, certainly for my, my generation. I think one of the important things is for particularly working-class children to see other working-class writers and, and to read the narratives of their own lives mm. um, that aren't fetishised, you know, that aren't miserable and grimy and just over there. So I think that, that would help that if there, were more, there was more choice of literature for working-class children to read. But it has to be said, authors don't earn a lot of money. The, the Society of Authors, uh, I think last year published a report that said the average earning of an author is £11,000 a year. So you're going to write and do something else. And I can understand any parent saying to their child, think about having something else as well as your writing, because there's, there's no guarantees that you're going to earn the, you know, the living wage, £28,000 a year or more. Yeah. So it's a shame that you know, that's the truth. But I think we do have to acknowledge that uh, publishing is not a great profession for earning money, but it's absolutely vital that we encourage children to tell their own stories and to be proud of their stories and not be trying to be somebody else. Mm. You know, what, what do you think, Damien? Um, well, I, I genuinely thought that you had to be dead to be a writer when I was a child because <laughs> I, I didn't know of any living writers and I thought I, they were all dead. Yeah. So I think being alive is a great start. <laughs> Um, but but I, so I, when I realised that that actually that wasn't true was when here's when is when there was a trustee at my school who was called Mr Lockhead and he, he talked about his daughter Liz and we had done Liz Lockhead at school and I was like Liz Lockhead she's real 
And, you know, and there she was. And so when he died, and she, it was his funeral, I met her. She was the first living writer I ever met at her father's funeral. Obviously, I wasn't like, it's now a good time to talk. But I was in awe that she was real. Yeah. I, and her work is obviously amazing. Um, she's astonishing. But, but that, that was so, so what I would say to, to answer your question, to create a pathway, um, I think author visits to schools are yes. really, really yes. important. Um, I think they should be state-funded. I think they should yeah. be mandatory. Um, I think, you know... And, um, I, I, and I love school visits. Yeah. They're amazing. Yeah. You know, Very good. Uh, um, and young people don't pull any punches about your work either. They're like that. You know, but, <laughs> but, uh, but, you know, so I think school, school, school visits yeah. for, for, for authors, uh, school libraries, yeah? Yes. It'd be great if schools had yeah. libraries. We're going to have a revolution. <laughs> uh, but, you know, I was uh, so square. I was my school librarian, the date stamp, you know, you were as well. Come on. And, um, and I loved it. And I absolutely loved the power that it gave me. But I also... <laughs> I, I did. I really did. But, um, but I also loved the fact that it meant I wasn't getting beaten up in the playground for being gay or being poor. Yeah. And that's true. And libraries yeah. are, first and foremost, a sanctuary. And we forget that. So schools should have libraries. Um, we should get Nicola Sturgeon over for this bit, shouldn't we? Um, she'll only cross the road. Um, so um, so school, school visits... School libraries, yeah. libraries generally, yeah. National Library for Scotland. What, what and and authors going into schools and showing them it can be done. And yeah. also publishers pu publishing stories that are going to get yeah. all sorts of children relating to yeah. them. I mean, yeah. obviously, fantasy is great, but also some about real lives. Yeah. And there is some. I mean, there's yeah. some great stuff. Amazing but you could have YA. more. So you, yeah. you, you've, you've got some YA on the go, haven't you? I have written um, a response to Moby Dick. Yes, so Moby Dick without the dick. So it's for feminists. <laughs> it's for feminist, a young adult feminist audience. And I chose Moby Dick because there are no women in it. There are two women mentioned. Uh, and it's I not think a lady whale, no? No, okay. it's a male it's whale. Male, male whale. Um, so I, I wrote a feminist response to Moby Dick, um, which is called Becoming Diner, and it's about a, a girl who struggles with her identity. And she along with Ahab, who has one leg, chases a camper van in whale white. Uh -huh. That's my whale. Okay. Yeah. What was it like making the switch? Because I'm also interested in this, you know, to, to doing YA mode. And, uh, and actually, did you decide, this is, I've got this idea, it's a YA novel, or did you start writing and think, it's not a, no, it's a YA novel? No, so, what's your so, difference? so the publisher said to me, we have this new range coming out. It's right. going to be... Uh, updated classics, choose anything. Ah. So I was going to choose Great Expectations, but it's been done to death. So I chose Moby Dick because there's no women in it, because yeah. it's, it's a feminist imprint. Um, and it is very different. Imprint? Bellatrix. Okay. It is very different writing for YA. You know, yeah. they've, uh, you know, kids today, you've got to hold their attention. Mm -hmm. You know, it's got to click along at a pace. They're not going to, you know, read two pages right, talking about a meadow. Yeah. I mean, who would? But, you know, but it, there's no sort of slide into it. It's like, what's happening? What's happening? What's happening? You know, you're trying to compete with Snapchat. Yeah. So you've really got to deliver on that story and make it relevant to them. I mean, thank God I'm immature because I had no <laughs> trouble getting into the mind of a 17-year-old. Mm. The, thought, the thought of doing it terrifies me. And yet, when I look at <gasps> what I write, I write young people. Yeah. You know, the, no the novel is You should do young it. People. I don't, I'm not, I'd, I'd feel intimidated. I yeah, would. no, do it. Do go. it. You should do it, shouldn't you? Yeah. yeah.
We'll see. Yeah. All right, okay. All right, I'll do it. I'll do it. I'll do it. No, I won't. I'm not. I'm too scared. Other questions? Other questions? Yes, person there. Microphone will come to you. Can you swear? Can you lie novels. You <laughs> can. You can read yeah. three folks. You're allowed three. Yeah. 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 About three. that. About three. About three. I mean, they prefer other words, but I had to put my three folks in. And they said, that's the limit. Do you get an allocation of other swear words? No, I think you can slide those in if you're careful. Yeah. Um, but I think the F word, you, you just have to be careful. And they will go through and count them. Oh, God. It's like I've, yeah. whenever I do stuff at Radio 4, it's that whole, I know. Oh, it's so stress-making. And, and it makes you sort of stumble, because you yeah. think, right now I'd say shit. Or, yeah. And you go, it was terrible, actually. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yes, the question there. This makes you want to ask a completely different question now. No, you can, you can have two. Go on. Um, OK, I do have two. You, yeah, yeah. Um, I want to take you back to the other novels that you did. I'm sorry, I know we're talking about common people, but I'm very interested in your referencing to um, maybe groups that don't have a voice, a sort of demographic that is without a voice. So thinking about My Name is Leon and then thinking about Trick to Time, so we're losing babies. I'm just wondering, is there a group that you think haven't had their voice released yet oh, it, without being sort of common people and rural communities. So what, in your opinion, who else are we needing to find and hear from? I think we could hear more narratives written by trans people about mm. their experience. Um, Fictionalised if necessary, I'm not saying it has to be memoir, but I think um, there is such a lot of gender fluidity at the moment and that argument is becoming more and more polarised, and I'd like something really nuanced that could explore and allow people to explore their sexuality and their gender identity. I think that's. I think it will come. I do think we've just started down that road. Um, apart from that, I don't know. I mean, if, if I knew it, I think I'd, I'd be really interested in writing it. I've got another novel brewing that is about a section of... I'm not telling you... Uh, a, a section of society I think we don't talk about that don't have a voice. But I can't tell you, sorry. I've only Such just started, and I'm so excited with it. Oh, are you in this super in love with it? I'm in love with it. Oh, yeah. oh, it's like being in love. It's so great. Yeah. How much have you done? None. 500 <laughs> words. Uh, I've done 500 <laughs> words to try and get the tone, and right. I haven't quite hit the right register, yeah. but I... I can't talk about it. That's I am so in exact. love. Don't. You have to keep it no, secret. Yeah. Right. And yes, your second question. Yeah, yes. yeah, you can. Please tell me that somebody's going to buy the film rights to Trick to Time. Yes, Trick to Time have the film rights sold. I really, really hope so. There's a major difficulty with it because of the identity of a person in it. I'm not going to say in case anyone hasn't read it. Yeah, so there's a, there's a, it would be a complex thing. Um, but my name is Leon's going to be on the TV in March. I think, Brilliant. next year. Um, and I am talking to somebody at the moment about the trick time, but, but there is structural issues in writing, and I would write the screenplay, I have to say. Oh, you would? Yeah. And try and get Fiona Shaw, because she did the audio book, yeah. try and get her to be Mona. Please, God. Yeah. That just made my heart race a little bit, talk of Fiona Shaw. <laughs> so so thrilling. You've got two questions, very lucky. Um, so um, uh, I'm just going to say a couple of quick shout-outs. Louise, one of the common people, you've got your event tomorrow. What time? Uh, 1.45, I 
145, there you are, if you want to go and hear from Louise, who we've been speaking of, who has lovely teeth, you can see them in person. <laughs> um, I have an event tomorrow morning with Richard Holloway um, at 10.30. Are you done now? Are you I'm done. I'm done. Yeah. Okay, right, we've done all that. Um, please join me again in thanking our sponsors, the National Library, um, the, the Edinburgh Book Festival for having us, and please join me in thanking Kit Duval. Thank you for listening. Find out more about the Book Festival at edbookfest.co.uk and keep up to date on events, booking information and more by following us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. Just search at edbookfest. The Edinburgh International Book Festival takes place every August in Charlotte Square Gardens.